Chapter 9 of A Bullet for Cinderella by John D. MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wednesday was a gray day. I had hidden Grassman's body on Monday. It seemed longer ago than Monday. The memory was very vivid, but it seemed to be something that had happened a long time ago. I saw the suitcases when I opened my closet to get at my own clothes. I was curious about what she had packed. I felt guilty about opening them. Then I decided that I had earned the right to look. I put the larger one on the bed and tried the latches. It wasn't locked. It popped open. There were furs on top, silky and lustrous. She had packed neatly. Underneath the furs were suits, dresses, skirts, blouses. The bottom layer was underclothing, slips, panties with frothy lace and intricate embroidery in shades from purest white through all the spectrum to black. The other suitcase was much the same. The clothing was fresh and fragrant with perfume. It was perfume that was not musky. It had a clean flower scent. I could understand how this was important to her. I remembered her speaking of the charity gifts of clothing, of the dirt in which she had grown up. She would want clothing, a great deal of it, and all fresh and clean. I found the black leather box in the bottom of the second suitcase. I opened it. Jewelry lay against a black velvet partition. Bracelets, rings, clips. I could not tell if the white and green and red stones were real. They were lustrous. They caught fire in the light, but I could not tell. I lifted the partition. There was money under it. Money in fifties and twenties and hundreds, a sizable stack of bills. I counted it. There was six thousand and forty dollars. When I replaced the partition, the stones looked more real. After the suitcases were back in the closet, I wondered what her thinking had been when she had packed the money in there. Perhaps she had assumed I wouldn't search the bags. I hadn't intended to. Maybe she thought that even if I did search them and did find the money, it would be safer with me than it would in the apartment. She could have been right. It was safe with me. Even had I been the sort of person to take it and leave, that sort of person would have waited for the chance of acquiring much more, a chance only Antoinette could provide. I found the bird woman cleaning one of the rooms. I paid her another two nights in advance for myself, and asked her to save the room next to mine for a friend who would check in on Thursday. I gave her one night rental in the second room. As I drove toward town, I found myself wondering if what Antoinette had proposed might be the best solution for me. It was tempting. I thought of the ripeness of her, the pungency of her personality, the very startling impact of her lips. There would be no illusions between us. She would make it easy to forget a lot of things. We would have no claims on each other, and would be wedded only by the money, and divorced when it was gone. After I ate, I went to the hardware store. I parked a half block from it. I wanted to talk to George again. I wanted to see if I could steer the conversation toward Eloise and Mr. Fulton. I wanted to see if he would say anything that would make more sense out of the Grassman death. Obviously Fitz hadn't contacted Antoinette, and she seemed confident that no one else could find the money. So it began to appear less logical that Grassman's death had anything to do with the sixty thousand. Then why had Grassman been killed? He could have gotten into some kind of argument with Fitz. We had seen Grassman at the lake on Saturday. Somehow I had spoiled things with Ruth, and so I had gotten drunk on Saturday and again on Sunday. 
Fitz could have killed him on Sunday, not meaning to do so. He could have loaded the body in his car and gone looking for some place to put it, and spotted my car. The California plates would be easy to spot. But by putting the body in my car, he would be eliminating any chance of my leading him to the money Timmy had buried. But maybe Fitz was convinced that with a clue in his possession, with the name Cindy, he could accomplish as much or more than I could. He was a man of great confidence in himself, and not, I had begun to believe, entirely sane. If Grassman had contacted Fitz, perhaps George could provide me with some meaningful clue as to why. But there was a sign on the door. The store was closed. The sign gave no additional information. It was crudely printed on paper, scotch-taped to the inside of the door, closed. I cupped my hands on the glass and looked inside. The stock did not seem to be disturbed. It could not mean closed for good. It took me several minutes to remember where George lived. I couldn't remember who had told me. White's Hotel. I found it three blocks away. It was a frame building. It was seedy-looking, depressing. It had once been painted yellow and white. I went into the lobby. Old men sat in scuffed leather chairs and smoked and read the papers. Two pimpled boys stood by the desk, making intense work out of selecting the right holes to punch on a punch board, while the desk man watched them, his eyes bored, his heavy face slack, smoke curling up from the cigarette between his lips. I want to see George Warden. Second floor. The stairs are over there. A girl just went up to see him a minute ago. I hesitated, and he said, Go ahead on up. Room 203. She takes care of him when he gets in rough shape. It's okay. George got taken drunk the last couple of days. She tried to phone him, and he wouldn't answer the room phone, so she came on down. Just now got here. I guessed it was Ruth. I wanted to see her. I didn't know how she'd react to me. I didn't want to talk to George with her there, though. I went up the stairs slowly. When my eyes were above the level of the second floor, I saw Ruth running down the gloomy hall toward me. I reached the top of the stairs just as she got there. Her eyes were wide and unfocused. Her mouth was working. Her face was like wet paper. I called her name, and she focused on me, hesitated, and then came into my arms. She was trembling all over. She ground her forehead against my chin, rocking her head from side to side, making an odd, chattering, moaning sound. After a few moments she regained enough control to speak. "'It's George, in the room, on the bed.' "'Wait right here.' "'No, no, I've got to telephone. Police!' Her high heels chattered down the wooden stairs. I went back to room 203. The door was open. George lay across the bed, naked. There was a rifle on the floor. A towel was loosely wrapped around the muzzle. It was scorched where the slug had gone through it. I moved uneasily around to where I could see his head. The back of his head was blown off. I knew that before I saw his head because I had seen the smeared wall. In the instant of death all body functions had shared the smeared explosion. The room stank. His body had a gray, withered look. I moved backward to the door. I backed through it into the hall. I mopped my forehead. It was a hell of a thing for Ruth to have walked in on. They could just as well move the sign to this door, to this life. Closed. Closed for good. I stood there in the hall and heard the sirens. 
The desk clerk came lumbering down the hall. Old men from the lobby followed him. They crowded by me and filled the doorway and stared in. "'Good Christ!' the desk clerk said. "'My, oh, my, oh, my!' said one of the old men. Some of the faces were familiar. I knew Hillis, and I knew Brubaker, and I knew Prine. Prine was not on top this time. He was taking orders from a Captain Marion. Captain Marion was a mild, sandy man who wanted everything cozy and neighborly. He had a wide face full of smile wrinkles, and a soft, buzzing voice, and little blue eyes sunk back beyond the thick, crisp, blonde curl of his eyebrows. Rather than individual questioning, he made it a seminar. I could tell from Prine's bleak look that he did not approve at all. They got us all down into a room in police headquarters. There was a stenotype operator present. Captain Marion apologized for inconveniencing anybody. He apologized several times. He shifted papers and cleared his throat and coughed. Well, now, as I finish with you people, I'll tell you whether you can take off or not. Nothing particularly official about this. It's a sort of investigation. Get the facts in front of us. Let's see what we got here. First, let me say a couple of words about George. I knew his daddy well, and I knew George well, and I knew Timmy. George could have been a big man in this town. He was on his way in that direction, but he lost his grip. Lots of men never seem to get back on the ball after bad wife trouble. But I had hopes George would pull out of it. Seems to me like he didn't. And that's too bad. It's quite a waste. George was a bright man. I saw Prine shift his weight restlessly. I got it right here on this paper that the body was discovered at twenty minutes after ten this morning by Ruth Stamm. Now, Ruthie, what in the wide world were you doing down there at that White's Hotel? Henry, I mean, Captain Marion, George didn't have anybody to look after him. Every once in a while I'd sort of help him get straightened out. You used to go with Timmy, didn't you? Yes, I did. I was trying to help George. Did Buck approve of that? I don't think so. I mean, I know he didn't. I see. Ruthie, what took you down there this morning? I went by the store yesterday afternoon, and there was a closed sign on it. It worried me. After I got home, I phoned White's Hotel. Herman Watkins was on the desk. He told me George was drinking. This morning I phoned the store, and there was no answer. Then I tried the hotel. George wouldn't answer the room phone. He does that sometimes. I mean, he used to do that. I have a key. So I drove down and went up to the room. The door wasn't even locked. I opened it, and I saw him. What were you planning to do? Get him some coffee? Get him cleaned up? Give him good talking to, I guess, as I've done before? Ruthie, you can stay or go, just as you please. Now then, I've got this other name here, Talbert Howard. You came along right after Ruthie. What were you doing there? I saw Ruth Stam start to get up and then sit back down. I wanted to talk to George. I saw that the store was closed, so I went to the hotel. What did you want to talk about? Prine answered for me. We had this man in last week, Captain. 
We thought he was another one of those people Rose Fulton keeps sending down here. This man claims he's writing a book about men who died in the prison camp where Timmy Warden died. This man claims he was there, too. He's never written a book. He's unemployed, has no permanent address, and has a record of one conviction. For what? I answered for myself. For taking part in a student riot when I was in school, disturbing the peace and resisting an officer. The officer broke my collarbone with a nightstick. That was called resisting an officer. Captain Marion looked at Prine. Steve, you make everything sound so damn serious. Maybe this boy wants to write a book. Maybe he's trying. I happen to doubt it, Captain, Prine said. What did you want to talk to George about, son? I wanted more information about Timmy. I glanced at Ruth. She was looking at me with contempt. She looked away. What happened when you got there? The desk clerk told me a girl had just gone up. I met Miss Stam when I got to the head of the stairs. She was too upset to talk. I got a look at that room myself. Hardly blame her. Terrible-looking sight. All right, son. You can go if you want to. I'd prefer him to stay, if you don't mind, Captain. Marion sighed. All right, Steve. Stick around, Mr. Howard. Now, Herman, we'll get to you. The doc says he can fix the time of death about midnight last night. He may be able to get it a little closer, but he says that's a pretty good guess. Did you see George come in? No, sir, I didn't see him. It was a pretty noisy night last night. There were a lot of people coming and going. I heard George was doing his drinking at Stump's until Stump wouldn't serve him any more. He left there about ten. Frankly, Captain, I was playing a little poker in the room behind where the desk is. I can't see the desk from there, but I can hear the bell on the desk and hear the switchboard if any calls come in. That's why I brought Mr. Caswell along with me. I'm Caswell, a little old man said. He had a thin, high voice and an excited manner. Bartholomew Boris Carswell, retired eleven years ago. I was a conductor on the Erie and Western Railroad. I'm not what you call a drinking man, and I see George Warden came in. I was behind him, maybe half a block. I just happened to look at my watch because I wondered what time I was getting in. Watch said 11.27. Doesn't lose a minute a month, see it? One of the best ever made. Right now it's eleven minutes to two, and that clock on the wall over your head, Captain, is running two minutes slow. Are you sure it was George? Sure as I know my own name. Man alive, he was drunk, wagging his arms, staggering all over. If it wasn't for his friend, he'd never have made it home. Who was his friend? Don't know him. Didn't get a look at him. Stiff-legged man, though. Stiff in one leg. Like limp. He horsepowered George right into the hotel. Time I came in, they were gone upstairs. The lobby was empty. I could see some of the boys hooting and hollering and carrying on up on the second floor, so I went there. They were back in Lester's room. He had himself two gallons of red wine. At least he started with two gallons. I had myself a little out of my own glass that I got from my room. It didn't set so good on what I had been drinking. It didn't set good at all. It liked to come up on me. So I went on down to bed. Got into my room at three after midnight. Right then I heard a funny noise. Just when I was closing my door, it sounded a little like somebody dropped a book or maybe tipped over in a chair and thumped his head. I listened, and I didn't hear anything else, so I went right to bed. It turns out that must have been when George shot himself. 
That would fit with what the doctor says. Harmon, could you find anybody else who heard anything? I couldn't find anybody else at all. You don't need anybody else, Caswell said. I've told you all you need to know, haven't I? Thanks, Mr. Caswell. You can go along if you want to. I'll stay and see what happens, thank you. Captain Marion studied the papers in front of him and then muttered to himself for a while. At last he looked up. It's not for me to make any decision. That'll be up to the inquest. But I think we can figure that George was pretty beat down. Lost his wife, lost his brother, lost most of his business. Drinking heavy. It certainly looks to me that if any man had reasons for suicide, George did. Steve, you look uneasy. What's on your mind? Captain, I don't think it's that easy. I've seen some suicides. I've read up on them. A towel was used as a crude silencer. I've never heard that being used. A suicide doesn't care about the noise. He wants people to come running. He wants it to be dramatic. The towel-wrapped muzzle of the gun was in his mouth when it went off. The gun was new, a three o three bolt-action rifle right out of stock, with the tag still wired to the trigger guard. There were nice clean prints on the side of the action. Too clean. They were George's, of course. There were no prints on the inside doorknob. It wasn't wiped, but it had been smeared. That could have been accidental or purposeful. Many suicides are naked, more than half. That fits. Buttons had been ripped off his shirt. Maybe he was in a hurry. Maybe somebody undressed him in a hurry. There was a bottle on the floor under the bed, half full of liquor. George left very clear prints on that. I'm interested in the stiff-legged man. What do you mean, Steve? I think somebody met George after he left Stump's. I talked to Stump. George was nearly helpless. He carried a key to the store. I think somebody went to the store with him and took a rifle out of stock. I think he slid it down his pant leg. That gave him a stiff-legged walk. He took George up to his room. He fed him more liquor. When he passed out, he undressed him, sat him on the edge of the bed, wrapped the muzzle, opened his mouth, put it between his teeth, and pulled the trigger. He put prints on the gun and bottle, smeared the knob, and left. Steve, damn it, you always make things harder. Strange things are going on. I found a report from the county sheriff's office today. A man named Grassman left his stuff in a cabin and didn't come back for it. That was last Sunday. He'd been staying there a couple of weeks. Milton Grassman, from Chicago. The county police found stuff in the cabin to indicate he worked for a Chicago firm of investigators and was down here on that Fulton thing. He stayed twenty miles north of town on the Redding Road. Yesterday, a car was towed in. Overtime parking, a routine deal. Blue sedan, late model, Illinois plates. Just before I came here, I found out the registration on the steering post is to this Grassman. All right, now. Grassman has disappeared, leaving his clothes in his car. George Warden dies all of a sudden. Grassman was down here, looking into the disappearance of a Mr. Fulton, who took off with George Warden's wife. It ties up somehow. I want to know how. If we can tie it up, we can find out for sure if it was suicide or murder. I vote for murder. It was a bold way to do it, and a dangerous way to do it. The man who did it took chances, but I think he did it. Was it Grassman? 
Was it that man over there who claims to be writing a book? Who was it, and why was it done? Marion sighed heavily. Steve, I could never get it through my head why you take off so ugly on these men who come down to poke around. That poor Fulton woman, if she wants to spend her money, why don't you let her? It's no skin off us. I don't want my judgment or the result of any investigation of mine questioned. We're the law and order here. I don't want amateur competition. Sometimes these fellows can help, Steve. I have yet to see the day. What did those Chicago people say? Did you get in touch? No. Well, you phone them, Steve, or teletype Chicago and let them handle it with the agency. Those fellows may want to send somebody else down. Why, for God's sake, demanded Prine, losing control. Why to look for Grassman, Marion said mildly. Missing, isn't he? I managed to walk out beside Ruth. She was cool, almost to the point of complete indifference. Ruth, I want to be able to explain some time. I don't think it's worth bothering about, really. The day had begun to clear, and we stood in frail sunlight. I don't know why I should worry so much about your good opinion, I said, trying to strike a light note. If I were you, I wouldn't even think about it. I'm usually frank with people, too frank, as you will remember. I expect others to be the same. I usually expect too much. I'm usually disappointed. I'm getting used to it. I found myself becoming annoyed at her attitude. It would be nice for you to get used to it. It would make it easier to be the only perfect person, surrounded by all the rest of us. What do you think you... I think you sound pretty stuffy, that's all. You make a lot of virtuous noise, and you condemn me without knowing the score. You don't seem exactly eager to tell me the score. We stood glaring at each other. It suddenly tickled her sense of the ridiculous. I saw her struggle to keep from smiling. Just then a man came up to us. He was young, with a thin face and heavy, horn-rimmed glasses. "'Hello, Alan,' Ruth said. "'Alan, this is Tal Howard. Alan Perry.' We shook hands, and he said, "'Ruthie, I just heard they're going to appoint me to straighten out George's estate, what there is left of it. You happen to know what happened to the household effects when he sold a siler?' "'He sold everything, Alan.' Alan Perry shook his head. I don't know where the money went. I've been in touch with the bank. There's only three accounts open, the lumber yard in the store and his personal account, and damn little money in any of them. You're about the only one of his old friends who saw much of him, Ruth. Where did it all go? He liquidated an awful lot of stuff in the past year. What the hell was he doing? Playing the market? Gambling? Women? Drugs? He was drinking it up, I guess. Oh, sure. Alan said. I know what Siler paid for the house. I know what he got when he sold the lease on Delaware Street. I know what he got for the cement trucks. If he didn't touch anything but Napoleon brandy at twenty-five bucks a bottle, he'd have to drink a thousand bucks a week worth to go through that money. Maybe it's in some other account, Alan. I doubt it. He looked at me uneasily and said, I don't want to talk out of school, but he had a big tab at Stump's. He was behind on the room at the hotel, and I heard last week that Sid Forrester had a sixty-day exclusive listing on the lumber yard, and had an interested customer lined up. That was the only thing George had left that was making any money. 
Maybe when you go over his accounts you can find out what he wrote checks for, Alan. That isn't going to work either. He wrote checks for cash, and cashed them at the bank. Amounts ranging from five hundred to two thousand. Ruth frowned. He didn't seem worried about money. I've tried to talk to him a few times. He didn't seem worried about anything. He didn't seem to give a damn about anything. He almost seemed to be enjoying some big joke. On himself. And right at that moment, something became very clear to me. Something I should have seen before. I wondered why I'd been so dense. Once you made the proper assumption, a lot of things fell into their proper place. End of chapter 9